before we get into the preaching of God's Word, would you hear with me our scripture reading this morning from Galatians chapter 2? We're going to read from Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15 and running through to verse 21 at the end of the chapter. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and our Heavenly Father, as we come to this morning's sermon and diving into and spending time in your word, We pray that this would ever be forefront in our hearts and our minds. That you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. And that he did not die for nothing. But he died to take his own. And to save his own. Lord, we pray for each one here. That we might live and act and conduct ourselves in such a way that reflects the price with which we have been bought. God, as we come together to worship through the preaching of your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be cultivating in our hearts an awareness of what you are saying through your word. That the words that are going to be spoken here are only as valuable as your Holy Spirit makes them to be, and we trust that you will put them into effect in our hearts and our lives. God, we thank you for each one that could gather here together in person this morning. We know that there are quite a few of us who cannot gather here in person for one reason or another, whether ill or shut in or kept away by questionable roads, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that for those who could not attend with us, that you would encourage them with the community that we can share even throughout the week and through the message and the service that we can share over the internet, Lord. But Lord, that we would not forsake meeting together, that we would do everything that is within our power to meet together with brothers and sisters. And when we have brothers and sisters who cannot meet with us, let us go meet with them, Lord. 
and that it wouldn't be just the the leadership of the church who who does these things, but that each one of us would feel a burden for our own brothers and sisters who are ill or shut in or cannot come in, out for one reason or another, and that we would seek them out and bring to them the the Christian communion that you have created us for, and Lord, in your will that they would be able to once again gather together with us here on Sunday mornings and share the blessing that it is to worship together as a gathered community. Lord, we do continue to pray for our governments at every level. Lord, we ask that those who you have placed in leadership over us would feel the burden and the weight of leading well and right and that they would know that the only way to lead well, the only way to lead rightly would be to do so in line with your word, that they might know your word and know you, and through knowing you, that they might make decisions and policies that are glorifying to you and good for your church. But Lord, we do know that we live in a fallen world where governments don't always act in ways that honor you. And we pray that we as your people would be motivated to follow you no matter what the circumstances. To reach out to our politicians and our um, the people that we have access to. To encourage them to make decisions that are honoring and glorifying to you. And God, as the weather has been suspect of late, we pray for those who have been working in conditions that are less than ideal. We have men in our church who are working oil field jobs in cold and freezing rain and ice and everything else. We have first responders who are working to keep us safe even in the inclement weather. We have medical staff and nurses and all of the above that are working hard in the midst of a pandemic to care for their fellow mankind. And Lord, we pray that you would watch over our people and keep us safe, and that whatever the situation we might be in, that we would take your gospel with us wherever we go, that we would have opportunity to speak your truth to those we come in contact with, and that you would cause our hearts to desire to share your gospel, not just being a because-we-have-to type thing, Lord, but that we would know it as good news and wish to share it with all who we can. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word that you have given us. We pray that you would speak to us by your word now. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now this morning we come to our passage of the day, and I mentioned last week in, our, in my message that uh, there was a lot of setup that came last week, and for anyone who is here who feels like they may have missed something, or online who feels like they want to catch up, all of our sermons are available on our website. Our technological team have done an amazing job making sure that they are available to us, and even if you feel like, hey, you missed something in the service, feel free to go back and re-watch and re-listen and um, 
try to mine as much as you can out of what is said here on Sundays. And I don't normally like doing messages that require multiple weeks to tie together because I'm never totally sure that I'm going to have the same audience the next week. But on Hebrews 7, we, we really don't have much choice. The preaching of the Word can sometimes feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose at the best of times. We don't want to exacerbate that by trying to stuff too much in one message. Last week, we looked at how Melchizedek was a type of Christ, a lesser picture of something greater to come. We also recognize the fact that Melchizedek and his priesthood was being set up as an order that is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. The major confirmation of this was the idea that if Levi was a descendant of Abraham, his great-grandson, and Abraham both willingly received blessing and then also paid tithe to Melchizedek, then according to chapter 7, verse 9 of Hebrews, Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met, met him. So today our author takes us one step further. Here he makes explicit the claim of Christ as superior to the Levitical priesthood. But why bother? Why would God not stick to the original priesthood that he had inaugurated? Well, that's the answer that our author is wanting to get into today. Would you please read with me from Hebrews chapter 7? We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 25. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said it to him. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
If you are looking for the thrust of today's passage, it's contained in verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under that the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Aaron? You have to remember our author is talking to a group of Hebrew believers. In our youth group on Friday, we were talking about the importance of studying the Bible and studying it correctly. And one of the most important things if we're looking to study the Bible well and correctly is to recognize it's written to an audience thousands of years removed from us and a whole culture removed from us. And our author here is writing to a group of Hebrew believers. Now, our author asked the question that would have been on the hearts and minds of any within the faith and even outside of the faith who are from a Jewish background. Why bother? God gave us Aaron. God gave us that priesthood. He established this priesthood from the line of Levi. It's been in place for over a thousand years at this point. Why the switch? Well, he answers with a rhetorical question of his own. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for a priest after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Aaron? And clearly implied answer here is that there wouldn't be one. If the Levitical priesthood and the system attached to it had been enough, there wouldn't have been a need for a change of priesthood. But it wasn't working. He fractured, divided, confused, and subjugated Israel that was as often as far from God as they could get was not the goal. The goal is perfection. And the perfection here isn't moral perfection. It is not knowing and doing everything exactly correctly. It carries with it the idea of completion. That is being completely reconciled and made right with God. The old priesthood wasn't up to the task of reconciling even just Israel with God much less accomplishing the blessing of all nations that was promised to Abraham. But if there was going to be a new priesthood, then there would have to be a major restructuring of how God was to be served and worshipped. For Melchizedek's line to assume the priesthood, things would have to change. The whole system of Worship was centered around a priesthood that had failed to achieve the completion of its goal. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah that these people had looked forward to, didn't fit the Levitical priestly mold. He was from the tribe of Judah. But, again, for the discerning reader from Israel, they should have known to expect this. Much of this chapter in Hebrews 7 that we're looking at is hearkening back to Psalm 110, where God is speaking to David. And he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These people should know that a priesthood of a new order was coming in the form of the Messiah, and also to expect that Messiah from the line of David, that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So there should have been a standard assumption that a new priestly order would one day be instituted. And this new priest would become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. No longer would the priesthood be transferred along the family line of Levi. Instead, it would be permanently assumed by a priest after the order of Melchizedek the only one who could claim the power of an indestructible life. Remember from last week's message that Melchizedek had functioned as a type for Christ, and this Melchizedek is a man we know had a beginning and had an end, who was born and then he died and ceased to act as a priest when he did so. But within the snapshot of Melchizedek's life that we have in Scripture in Genesis, we see Melchizedek come in, with no record of beginning, and leave with no record of end. And when he stepped out of the frame, he was still operating as a priest. So within that snapshot, we have a no beginning, no end, and a priesthood that is never said to end. But then we have Jesus come on the scene, the eternal Son of God, legitimately and truly without beginning or end of days, one who by his resurrection proves that his life is indestructible and that his priesthood does last forever. Jesus never steps out of the frame. Never does he relinquish his role, for it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You have to realize that this was fighting words. If you're talking to a group of Hebrew Christians and probably some Jewish believers mixed in there, going... To call the previous commandment weak and useless would have required that these people completely renounce their their ties to that old system. But that's the comparison this morning. Why the priest after the order of Melchizedek rather than the priest after the order of Levi? Because the priesthood of Levi and the law on which it was based had become weak and useless. The law and the priesthood and the system as found in the Old Testament had served its purpose. It was necessary no longer. 
It had pointed people towards the coming of a greater priest. The sacrificial system had reminded us of the required cost to cover the blood debt of humanity. The law had reminded us that we are woefully inadequate to the task of satisfying God's commands on our own. But when Christ came, when he was born as a human, lived a perfect, sinless life that fulfilled all the requirements of the law, when he died the substitutionary death on his people's behalf and was raised on the third day and was glorified to sit at the right hand of God the Father forevermore, to cling to the old priesthood in the face of that is akin to a kid bringing a slingshot to a real-life gunfight. That old priesthood had served its purpose and lost its power upon the introduction of Christ and the new covenant. Anyone who ever had a slingshot or a Nerf gun when they were a kid gets this. You're running around with your slingshot or your Nerf gun and you feel absolutely invincible. You have the cutting-edge weaponry. You might have the bigger Nerf gun than your friend. You might have the better slingshot and you feel absolutely indestructible. And for that time, it served its purpose. But if you were called up and sent to war today, I don't think too many of us would be going to our childhood toy box to dig out our slingshot and our Nerf gun. Because it, now in the face of what we'd be facing now is useless. Just so today we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Hopefully many of you will remember my message from the end of chapter 6 a couple weeks ago. And here the author of Hebrews highlighted the oath that was given to Abraham. In verse 18 of chapter 6, which says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That morning I said that we should have felt God's Father's heart coming through and that God, knowing our tendencies to doubt and fear and waver, so we would know the unchangeable character of his purpose, decided to guarantee it with an oath. God didn't need to make an oath to make his word sure, but he cared enough for his chosen people to do so, and to swear by himself to give us, his people, confidence. And in our passage this morning, God still doesn't need to make an oath to secure the priesthood of Christ. But he does so for his people to give us confidence. You'll recognize that nowhere in Scripture is there an oath that the priesthood of Levi will last forever. But then he gives an oath that the priesthood of after the order of Melchizedek will last forever. That we might know that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Christ is a priest forever. There are two important things that I want to point out for us today about the close of the old covenant priesthood that was administrated by the priests of Levi. First, I want us to see and understand that we are no longer bound under the law. 
In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We are no longer bound under the law, and yet the law has not passed away. How do we reconcile this? The moral law of God still remains. The moral law of God, as we can find in the Ten Commandments, are directly connected to God's character, revealing to us who God is and what he expects of his people of all times and all places. Jesus even goes so far as to sharpen the commands in the Sermon on the Mount, including the absolute strictest of interpretations. Hatred is akin to murder. Lust is akin to adultery and etc., And he even sharpens these laws to the point where we recognize that we still are completely incapable of following them. The law as it displays God's character and sets the standard of holiness remains now and forever. When our author says a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, he's speaking of the law as a means of salvation. The law as it introduced a sacrificial system, a Levitical priesthood, the rituals and the ceremonies. These things are no longer required for those who claim to follow Yahweh. And what a blessing that is. As I read the Old Testament, I'm struck by the repetitive and temporary nature of the sacrificial system constantly having to come again and again and again to offer sacrifices. Having to come year after year for ceremonies and festivals that are but pale shadows of what you hope is coming. And what today we see in clarity through the work and the life of Christ. In Christ we can know that we are His and we are safe. That brings me to the second thing I wanted to point out is that we're no longer subject to the revolving door of the priesthood. When I look back through the Old Testament and I see the laundry lists of good priests, bad priests, wicked priests, holy priests throughout Israel's history, and these priests are chosen not because of any real qualification but by just descent and lineage, I give great thanks to God for my perfect and eternal high priest. Imagine living in Ezekiel's day. As an Israelite, your whole relationship with God is based upon this priesthood. They are your only link between you and God. But then God says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 22, priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Put yourself in an Israelite's shoes. How would you feel about your state before God when your only link to him is so desperately wicked? 
But today, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The criteria today is, of the priesthood is that of the power of an indestructible life. And it is guaranteed by an oath from God that it shall never end. Never again do we have to worry about whether our priest is in right standing with God. Never again do we have to worry about whether our priest is going to represent us correctly and with integrity before the Most High God. We have the perfect high priest. And our author wraps this morning's passage with some of the most beautiful words found anywhere in Scripture. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' oath-bound, indestructible, eternal priesthood makes him the guarantor of a covenant that is so much better. And I love that word that is chosen here for guarantor. In the English language, a guarantor is typically used as a financial term, describing an individual who promises to pay a borrower's debt in the event that a borrower defaults on their loan obligation. Guarantors pledge their own assets as collateral against these loans. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, pledged his own assets as collateral for his people. We have debts to God that we can never even remotely hope to repay. We are woefully disqualified from entering the promised rest that we are told to hope for. But praise God, we have one who stands forever as our guarantor, as our mediator between us and God the Father. We need no other priest. We have the one priest, Jesus Christ, who continues forever. You don't need me standing up here before you to have a relationship with God. No priest is the mediator between you and God anymore. Too often, as we as believers think of Jesus' work as being past tense, the hard work was Jesus being born into a measly human body or managing to live a perfect sinless life, or most certainly the horrific sinner's death that he died on the cross. Maybe it was even him being raised from the dead and glorified. That was the hard work. But now doesn't Jesus just live free and clear, able to just rest from his labors, and maybe he's just sitting there waiting and basking in 
the rest and just waiting for us to come and show him worship. What does Jesus do for us today? Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, his people. Our Savior is not lazing around on a cloud waiting for us to die and come and praise him. He is actively interceding for us before the Father. I know many of us wonder what that might look like, and we aren't given all the details. And I can't claim to know perfectly what Christ's current intercession before the Father looks like, but we are given examples of his earthly intercession for his people. Jesus says to Peter at the Last Supper, just before telling Peter that he's going to betray him, he says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, I don't, do not ask for these, speaking of the apostles. Jim did a great job breaking this down for us when he preached on the book of John. But he says, I do not ask for these, the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is our great high priest mediating for us before God the Father, interceding for us before God the Father. That same Savior is interceding like this for you today, coming before the Father and asking that you will not fail in the faith, that we would be strengthened, that we may know the Father the way he does, that we will be one as a people and that we will be with him where he is to see his glory. If you or I have any grace or gift or sign of faith at all, it is at the will and pleasure of the Father and most certainly at the request of the Son who intercedes for us. Dr. Richard Phillips gives us a warning when speaking on this passage. He says that when we think of intercession in heaven, there are two great errors that we must avoid. The first and greater error is to think that Jesus is an insufficient intercessor, that he is somehow disinterested or incompetent. 
This is the grave error of those who would turn to others, such as deceased relatives or saints or the Virgin Mary for their intercession. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost through his intercession. To turn to any other is to deny this and impugn God's word. Another error is to infer from Jesus' intercession that the Father sits in hostility towards us and is only begrudgingly placated by the labors of his Son. It is true that we are worthy of God's complete disdain. But never let us forget that Jesus here fulfills the office to which the Father appointed him. We are saved because the Son does the will of his Father for us, opening the way for our full reconciliation as God's beloved children. It is God himself who so loved the world that he gave his only Son. If Jesus is eternally and effectually interceding for us from his position at the right hand of God Most High, why would we ever turn to anyone or anything else to intercede for us? Why would we bother praying to a saint or a relative or Mary or anyone else if we believe that Christ is? is active, interceding for us. There is no person in history, living or dead, who has or ever will have the ear of the Father the way God the Son does. And God the Son needs no extra convincing to pray for his people, to intercede for his people before God the Father. And the Father has seen fit to send the Son to fulfill this role that those whom he called might be saved. Brothers and sisters, no longer are we burdened by the rules and ceremonies and laws of the Old Covenant by which we try fruitlessly to please God by our own sacrifices and holiness. Instead, we have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek who has become the guarantor of a better covenant. A covenant by which we draw near to God by his Son, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A covenant where the Son's sacrifice, the Son's devotion, the Son's holiness is credited to us as righteousness. While he takes the penalty of the sin that we so deserve, all the shame and the wickedness of our own sinful lives is placed on him while we receive credit for righteousness beyond our imagining. We have a new covenant where a perfect, eternal high priest intercedes for us always from his seat at the right hand of God the Father, that we might persevere in faith unto the end, that we might one day personally see him, in his glory, and worship him without hindrance. So why did God replace the Levitical priesthood? Because that priesthood made nothing perfect. That law made nothing perfect. He replaced it because in Christ, he would make all of his people perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that they might persevere in faith unto the end. 
our Savior has come to put us in right relationship with God. It boggles the mind to think what we have been saved from. It boggles the mind to think what we have been saved unto and to recognize that we have been saved by the work of a Savior that we, his people, have scorned day in and day out our whole life long. Christ made his people perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that we might persevere in faith unto the end. Praise God. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we cannot even wrap our minds around what you have done by sending your Son. Our hearts break at our own sin, at our own unwillingness to believe and submit to your truth when faced with the truth of what you have done for us and for your glory. God, make us ever more worthy of what you have done, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight, conforming us to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we no longer have to fulfill all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. We thank you that we no longer have to rely on a corrupt and human priesthood. But we rely on the priesthood of the Son of God, God the Son, Most High. And Lord, as we come to know you and come to worship you, may we be motivated to live lives that are holy and righteous, not to earn your favor, but in gratitude at what you have done and by the work of your Holy Spirit. For you work in us to will and to work to your good pleasure. Lord, we thank you that we live in a day where we have access to you in a way that our forebears in the faith in the old covenant could only have dreamed of. That we can hear you speak anytime we open the pages of Scripture. That we can know your truth. We can come before you with unveiled faces in prayer upon the work of Christ the Son bearing before you our joys and our pains and our struggles. God, may we avail ourselves of that. May we come before you to adore you 
to confess our sins, to thank you for what you have done, and to bring before you the desires of our heart. And may you conform the desires of our heart to your desires. And as we go from here, Lord, may each one be motivated to share this beautiful truth with their friends and families and brothers and sisters and co-workers that do not yet know this. And if there is one here who has not heard this or not received this and surrendered their life wholly and completely to you, may you work by your Holy Spirit to draw them to yourself. May they lay down the hold that they have clung to on their own life and their own self-determination, and may they say, God, you know better. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come soon, that we might see you face to face, to worship you not in the even clouded way that we do now, but worship you face to face and to know you. To you be the glory, Heavenly Father. To you be all praise and honor. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as you're able and hear the benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.